Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 277. Um, and this week I'm joined by Inua Ellums. This is one of my favourite chats I've had. Um, I swear I don't say that all the time. I say it every now and then, but um, yeah, I was really pleased to catch up with Inua. It's, I've, uh, this year I've had some really cool ones. Obviously I've had some huge names like Danny Boyle and Charlie Brooker, um, Mary J. Blige this year. But I've really enjoyed, as well as a lot of the little ones like your 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 your, P, your PC Leon Edwards, Leon Edwards. That's 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 an MMA fighter. A, a Leon um, McLeod. Um, people like Johan Harry. You kind of not celeb names, but I've also had a run of people that I used to kind of gig with in the spoken word days. So I I had Mark Grist and Ross Sutherland and Tim Clare in an episode that was a really popular one. Um, and this week continues that because Inua is an old pal. Um, but I'm not going to ramble on too much. I mean, t- t- <laughs> this is going to sound like I'm being angry. I'm not. To be clear, the podcast has started. Um, I've had a, I've done some long intros recently, and I've had a couple of people say, um, "Oh, for, oh, 15 minutes until the podcast started." Um, that's not. This is the podcast. There's an interview section of it, but we have a bit of a catch up. Um, the one in question was the the Charlie Brooker one, and I was, you know, in the intro, I was talking about Black Mirror and what my favourite episodes are and stuff like that. So I'm absolutely fine with people skipping intros. I do it on some podcasts and some I don't. But um, yeah, it's a weird one that people don't think it started yet, but it has started. I promise. But there's a few things I want to talk to to about this week. But to prove I'm not moaning, I'm going to put them in the outro, and I'm going to. Kind of experiment with that for a bit. Try having more of the chat and ramble in the outro and keep the intros quite short. Obviously, there's there's the adverts and everything that keeps it free. But um, that's what that's what keeps it free. And it's been, you know, free every day or every week. At least one every week for five years, which is pretty cool. Um, if you want to support that, you can head to patreon.com slash Scroobius Pip um, or go to speechdevelopmentrecords.com where you can buy merch and that um at patreon i do poem of the month i do spoken word bits i do distraction pieces rewind episodes which are bonus podcasts so um yeah it's tons of stuff but yeah there's a few things i want to talk to you about some glastonbury stuff that blew me away and um the upcoming club night all things like that i'll talk about that in the end but in this intro i do want to make sure i plug that inua um is doing his barbershop chronicles at the roundhouse um from the 18th to the 24th of August before it tours throughout out the autumn. Um, and I think you're going to hear this conversation and it, it had me itching to, to see the show. We recorded this a good month or so ago and it's been, been killing me. I have to wait as long as I, I have to, to catch the show. Cause yeah, it's really interesting. It's great to talk to and you to get more of his story. As I say a lot, the beauty of these podcasts is I get to have conversations with people that I've known for years, but discuss stuff that we wouldn't discuss if we caught up you'll generally catch up and go how you doing and you'll talk about what's been going on the last week but we talk about all of Inua's life and it's it's a fascinating one so um yeah let's get on with the podcast um and I'll I'll pop up at the end for a bit more chat and rambling this is episode 277 of the distraction pieces podcast with Inua Ellums 
Okay, hold on just a moment there, Distraction Pieces listeners. Um, we're about to get to the chat with Pip and this week's guest, Inua Ellums. But just before we get to that, uh, I'm just checking in under orders from the big boss man himself, Mr. Scroobius Pip. Um, basically, just to clarify something about the dates of the Barbershop Chronicles play by Inua Ellums. Uh, so, Pip mentioned that the play started on the 18th and runs to the 24th of August, which makes it sound like it's like six days in August, when in fact it starts on Thursday the 18th of July and runs till Saturday the 24th of August. So I hope that makes some sense. Obviously that gives you a lot more time to watch the play, which is very helpful. So yeah, uh, I'll provide links and whatnot in the write-up for this week's episode. So basically you'll be like a click or a tap away from all the info you need. And uh, yeah, so just to clarify, Barbershop Chronicles, Thursday 18th of July to Saturday the 24th of August. Hopefully that makes things a little clearer. All right, I'm out. Thanks, people. Enjoy the episode. kind of start start halfway th- through a sentence thing i'm joined today by in elms how are you sir i'm good i'm good i'm all right it's it's been a while like we've known each other good, i'd say mate. we first met over 10 years ago yeah, at least a decade at but least. then we've not caught up in five years or so i think i think yeah. it's the weird world of social media is i've yeah. been aware of what you're doing i've been watching all the switches in lanes the weaving in and out but you know, unless you're gigging together or something, you yeah, know, you just end drop up. Out. Yeah, yeah. Even our mutual friend Stephen, yeah, um, Polar Bear. I haven't seen him in a while. We, I think, last time I saw him was when I booked him for an event. Yeah, and the next time I'm going to see him is when he's booked me for an event in October. <laughs> so it's just that's exactly it's, it's that nuts. weird anti-socialist. I think it comes from self-employment as well. Yeah. You know that you're like, if I'm gigging, then I've got a reason to be out the house. If I'm yeah. not, I should be writing, I yeah. should be creating, yeah. I should be doing all this other work. Yeah. So right. that, that that was always the way on on the spoken word scene, that the most of the time you'd see people is when either you were on the same gigs or we were p- putting on gigs ourselves. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll let's start by going all the way back. I remember first meeting you with Josh and Musa. Oh, oh my um, god! As, as, <laughs> oh, as, as part of poem in between people, yes. Um, oh my and I, my thing, you're. This is going to sound weird, but you're someone who, of, of all those gigs, I'd always pay real attention to because I knew, I thought you just had the best voice in the world, the most calming, r- relaxing, wonderful voice. So I felt I had to pay extra attention to make sure I'm not being tricked by that. To, <laughs> right. to make sure you are a good writer and you are doing yeah. And it turned out you were every time. But it's that thing. <laughs> it was like he could probably be reading the phone book, and I'd be going, <laughs> "This is beautiful. This is amazing." Yeah. So how was that? Oh, or what was I guess your route into the spoken word scene and poetry and all of that? Man, um, we're going all the way back here. All the way back. We went through crazy money problems. So, okay, way back. When I was a kid, I was always good at drawing and just making up stuff with my fingers, with my hands. And I spent maybe the first chunk of my life imagining that I'd end up as a visual artist. So I just wanted to draw and paint everything. 
And then um, when we left Nigeria, um, and, and we ran away from Nigeria, maybe we'll come back to that later. When we yeah. left Nigeria, um, I we moved to Dublin. Left Nigeria, came to the UK. After three years, moved to Dublin. After three years, came back. Wow. And um, I was... So what class, kind of age was that? Um, so we left Nigeria when I was 12. Yeah. Moved to Dublin when I was 15. Wow. Um, when I was 18, left Dublin and came back. That, that's key developmental ages yeah. to be getting a lot of... Number one, a lot of disruption, but on the positive side, a lot of different input, a lot of different yeah, influences, right? exactly. I feel as if my identity changed three times over, like yeah. completely changed. So by the time I got to London when I was 18, I was lost. I was a smorgasbord of worlds, man. I was, I was confused. It was, it was crazy. And I started writing poetry because it was, I was, there wasn't enough money to afford paint anymore, but yeah. I wanted to make things with my fingers. And that was the, that was the next best thing. So that's when I probably started writing poetry. And I did that for maybe a year or two, just, just for myself. And then my oldest friend gave me a CD, and it was written in with felt it like a sharpie amethyst rock star. I was like, "Wow, what the hell is like whatever?" Yeah. And he said, "Just listen to it. You like poetry. You might this. You might listen. You might like this." So, just remember, plug it in. We lived in in um, Kennington at the time. Late at night, just plugging headphones on. I was trying to be quiet because the rest of the house was asleep. So it's just me, you know, wrap around ear headphones and just Saul's voice. Oh, and me looking like, what the hell? Then listening to the album and being completely blown away. Yeah. Then Googling poetry or spoken word and finding small cafes to go to. And that's, and that was around maybe 2003. Yeah. When I started doing that. And that's when I started working. Well, just just listening to live poetry and then trying to figure out if I could be part of this thing and then did it madly. And my first book came out in 2005 within three years of writing. So I, that's how it kind of started. I love that because I love how much the scene at that time, everyone was learning together and de- developing together. I love to hear because it's a similar story to me there. People assume that you come from, like people always ask me, what my favourite poets were at school and stuff like that. It's like, I wasn't into poetry at school. Mm. I got into it as a as a, a necessity almost. I, yeah. I, I wanted to rap. I didn't have any beat makers. And around <laughs> the same time, I'd found Saul Williams and Sage Francis and yeah. Gil Scott Heron and people like that. And I love that, that you wanted to paint, but the yeah. paints weren't there. So it's like, so what else am I going to do? I've got a pen. I've got, yeah. I've got a pencil or whatever else. And that I think that can be a beautiful route into any art form because you're not coming in intimidated i guess or feeling lower you're coming in going oh what is this i I think at times if you've had an education in it there could be such a fear Mm. and an over reverence a fear to step into it and the thing i loved about that scene was all of us were just like let's get up and do it yeah let's go i've I've written this on the way here let's perform it just just read it let's just go yeah but the thing is i i was a nerd so i that's the feeling with this. I was a nerd, so I loved my English classes. Yeah, I geeked out on homework. I geeked out on poetry. My poetry teacher, my English teacher in Dublin, was also the basketball coach. Right. So um, I would do my English homework with the basketball team. Wow. So I never thought 
it was a geek. I was it was geeky or nerdy to love like Elizabeth Bishop and Bolin and Jim and I was just thinking the coolest motherfuckers on a basketball team, and we're doing our poetry, you know, homework together. So therefore, poetry is cool, and we're doing this whilst listening to like everything from House of Pain to Dr. Dre to Snoop yeah. to Eminem to D12, all of those guys. So I'm like, okay, we're listening to hip hop here. We're discussing Shakespeare here, and after this, we're gonna play basketball for now. You just like, in, I never thought this was weird. This was yeah. just cool, and we, it was cool because we were doing it, and we're doing it because uh, we liked our basketball teacher. Our basketball coach was also a poetry teacher, so it was just all happened. Yeah. So, um, and I think it was the Irish who loved, who taught me to love hip hop because I hated it when I first came here from Nigeria. Right. Wow. Oh my god, because I love listening to traditional Nigerian music and to um, pop music from America. Yeah. And hip hop never made its way to Nigeria at the time. So when I came to London, I was listening to like these really dope melodies and just some dudes talking on top of it. I was like, what's wrong with you? Shut up. Can't <laughs> you hear that this? riff? Like, what, you know, <laughs> and then moving to Dublin and hang with the basketball team and my poetry teacher, I was like, these guys are, these, these are poems on beats. Yeah. And they began to listen yeah. more intently. And that's when I began to love hip hop. How, how was that in the kind of, cause Ireland, Late eighties, early nineties, incredibly white. Yeah, incredibly but, racist. But yeah, a, a lot of racism, but also hugely embraced hip hop because it was the voice of the voiceless, the voice yeah. of the overlooked. And Ireland was very much had a history of being shit on, essentially. Yeah. So it felt like it really took ownership of hip hop. So there was that weird. There was a lot of racism in society, but amongst the youth, it seemed there was a lot of idolizing of of these of these black rappers in america who were who were opening their minds so you are so spot on like even Amer- african-american rappers were talking about the same thing i remember listening to this huge um interview in like dense detailed interview with the guys from um dead press yeah and they're talking about how they never believed that they were poor white americans until they went on tour and they were, they were meeting the so-called trailer trash Americans. I say that in, qu- in quotation marks because yeah. it's a derogatory term. Who were who were rapping back to them? I'm an African. I'm an African, and I know what is happening because yeah. they paired their suffering with people on the other side of the world who they never yeah. met before because they fit within you know the global financial capitalist monetary systems in which they were rock the right there at the bottom. Yeah, you know, and the same thing was happening definitely part of Dublin where I lived in in Tala. And if you say Tala to Dubliners now, they'll laugh at you because right. they know what it was and what it remains. Incredibly deprived. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 in Ireland, uh, when it's deprived, it is deprived because mm-hmm. there's not. It's so there's such a there's a spread out nature of Ireland. There'll yeah. be people who small villages that they're so it's farm villages essentially. Yeah. So yeah. poor on a farm is poor, yeah. and, but then you get into the the, the cities. It's a similar thing. There's this yeah. movement to try and get into some kind of m- metropolis, but not necessarily the commerce and revenue to turn it into a London or these at that point, I guess, particularly after all the divides, all the troubles and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah, it sounds like you kind of in a way landed on your feet in having the basketball. Cause again, it's at the time of Chicago Bulls, Charlotte Hornets, you know, all this where basketball's cool as fuck to have your basketball teacher also be your poetry teacher. Cause poetry at that point, I think it would, most people's poetry teacher was a dusty old white man, you know, or woman. Um, So do you feel that that was kind of 
a lucky roll of the dice there yeah. that this cool person happened to be the one teaching you this thing that might not have been perceived as cool otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. Like he gave me so much confidence and belief at a time where I didn't have much going. Uh, where I was the only black boy in my school. Yeah. So people just expected the least of me. Yeah. I remember my very first English class, um, they were reading Catcher in the Rye and my classmates were stumbling through the book. So I raised my hand offering to read. We're all reading out loud. And the whole class started laughing at me, including the English teacher, because they didn't think Africans could read. Like, that's wow. how crazy, that's how backwards the school was when I arrived. Uh, yeah. So my English teacher, my English teacher still believed in my abilities. When we were, like, you know, re- reading Shakespeare plays in the class, he'd ask me to translate it to the class. Yeah. He'd be like, okay, you know, I know you understand this. Half of the class don't. So you tell them what this line meant. So he come like, without him, I definitely would not be a writer right yeah. now. He just, he just, he just hadn't digested any of the bullshit. He just yeah. saw me for who I was to the point where, to the point where I rewrote Romeo and Juliet in, in Dublin. And what age was this? <laughs> um, it was so bad. 17, something yeah. like that. I just saw the play. I was like, this is good, but I can do better in Irish. So I rewrote it with just full of Irish, like street slang, yeah. you know, and I was going to get the entire my year to perform it. And I cast the basketball team in all the main roles and their girlfriends. I love it. <laughs> it was, and he never stopped me. He was like, yeah, do what you want. I mean, we only had one rehearsal. So it was a disaster and nothing happened. Yeah. But the fact that... I told him about it. He found me the rehearsal space in the main hall. I booked the rehearsal. Just like, he was like, just go in, Mr. Nolan, I, angel among men. I love it. Um, Joey Diaz talks about immigrants, that state of mind and mm. the, the, the motivation and drive of someone arriving in a country to not only be on a level, to try and exceed a level. And it's something I see in my small town in Essex. Again, the, the, I mean, there are race divides. It's been one of the key areas for U- UKIP and BNP and all these idiots over the years. But it's mm. it's on ignorance because the fact is, like my brother has, has has worked in the libraries for years, and he's always said that it's the poor young white kids that are coming in and reading years below their reading age and things like that. And all of the black and Asian communities are coming in and getting books above their reading age and pushing themselves and motivating. So all the rhetoric that we have, I mean, God, it might be its worst in many years at the moment of the threat of immigration. Mm. It is exactly that. It's nonsense and, 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 and bullshit. And it sounds like you were the perfect example of that yeah. for people who, had you not been there, would never have had that example. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They would have gone on laughing at the idea of the Nigerian kid reading. Yeah. But you were there by chance to potentially change that closed off view to a whole class of people at least. So how was that as on the side of your own motivation to, to push yourself and to develop? I've thought about this a lot and there's a Venn diagram and in the middle is where I am. And I think, couple of things. When immigrants leave their country, like no one does this. No one makes that decision lightly yeah. to leave everything behind. It has mental health repercussions, mental like, like financial repercussions, economic that lasts 
sometimes generations trickles yeah. down through your family. I'm still living in it now. Huge I'm, identity. Huge. Repercussions. You know, like, like I remember Warsan, the poet, you know, Warsan Shira, oh. she writes, no one, no, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. Like that is yeah. the threat, you know? That's perfect. Wow. So, I remember all of those left, you know, um, contributed to me leaving. And when you arrive in a country and you've lost everything, you have nothing to lose. Yeah. So you just push yourself because why not? (laughs) What's the worst that could happen? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You have nothing to lose. There's nothing that can, like, you know. So I think that definitely contributed to why I kept on just pushing myself, writing, throwing myself into every conceivable opportunity that came my way. But also, I'm a Nigerian. Yeah. <laughs> and just to say, <laughs> there's, there's, there's something in the water amongst Nigerians. Yeah. I can't quite explain it. I don't think many Nigerians can. <laughs> but we tend to be louder and brasher and more front-footed than most other sub-Saharan Africans. And when I was researching um, Barbershop Chronicles, this play, yes. I traveled to six different African countries in a space of six weeks. So I got to witness in a short space of time just how different Nigerians are. And we are fucking mental. Yeah. Like nuts. Every other country I visited, they were sort of relaxed. The pace of life was slower. But Nigeria, oh my God, everything was happening at the same time. You have this deep survivalist mentality of, you know, to borrow from hip hop, to make a dollar out of 15 cents, to make something out of nothing. And that sense of, get up and go manship yeah. really affects and paired with an immigrant mentality where you live in the country just makes like a perfect, a, a, a perfect pot in which to be, to create and to create um, relentlessly. Yeah. And that's definitely how I operate. I love that. I, I think there's a still massive amounts of learning to be done in the, in the lazy uh, racial st- Stereotypes, even unintentional, that are, mm. are particularly in the UK and America. Um, I was watching a comedian, Brian Callan, recently, and he played upon it because he was like, there's stereotypes of what Asians are like. He's like, I mean, there's over 40 countries in Asia with hugely different <laughs> yeah. uh, beliefs, outlooks, societies, but Asian, that covers yeah. it. And, and Afro-Caribbean, again, there's so much variation yeah. across all the all the countries and all that. But he's like, there's an Afro-Caribbean, that, that, that's that world. It's like, it's such a weird thing that, mm. that we can bunch such huge varied areas i mean we do it with america as well i guess we think of americans america is you know 30 or 40 england's yeah 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 we can perfectly see the nuance of northerners v southerners be the welsh be the scottish or this kind of thing it's like yeah and that times 40 50 times to cover (laughs) america yet we go you know what americans are like yeah of course not which americans (laughs) are we talking about yeah um, it's a fascinating one. So you arrived in, in the UK. Did you know when you arrived that you were settling now, that the jumping about was over? or was Because, again, if you've had that kind of, you came here, you were here for three years, you went to Ireland, you were there for a while, you're back. At what point did you feel, all right, this is home now? Or have you ever felt that, I guess? Not quite yet, because yeah. I'm still I still have a Nigerian passport. Yeah, and our immigration battle with with the Home Office lasted twenty three years. Wow. As in, right now I've applied for naturalization, so I'm not even naturalized yet. Wow! So I'm, I've applied for naturalization, and I don't have a British passport. I still have a Nigerian one. So um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm still in it. When I think of home, I think about my laptop. Her name is Meredith. She served me well. <laughs> and that's who I'm closest to. That's, that's my solid ground. Yeah. When it's nighttime, my fingers are poised over my keys and I'm, I'm lit up by the light of the keyboard. And, and that's, and that is home. That's a space that is with me wherever in the world that I am. Yeah. But everything else has just been fluid and constantly. So when we left Nigeria, um, I think, I think we thought we'd settle here, but again, we had huge immigration, immigration. Oh my God. The story is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> let me see if I can put it in a nutshell. Um, my father was a Muslim when he married my mother who was a Christian. Right, And we lived in northern Nigeria, which has been overrun with Boko Haram over the last few years. Like yes. you've seen the news report. But around, around 1996, um, 1993 or four, my father went to Mecca for the pilgrimage. Right. When he was there, saw some things that didn't quite sit right with him. Came back to Joss in the north where we lived and was reconsidering his faith. And the members of the Muslim community there weren't happy with my father. He was... He was a middle-class Nigerian man, upper middle-class, I'd say, wealthy. We had a few houses. My father was a managing director of a Coca-Cola bottling plant. He ran a shipping company. Um, he spent most of his time traveling across the world. So a man of his standing and his wealth in our, in, in our part of Nigeria, questioning his faith meant a lot of things. Yeah. And they couldn't let that fly. Right. So they made life difficult for us. Um, we had to flee to move to Lagos, to another part of Nigeria. I think they followed us there. Um, they killed one of our security guards. One of my uncles vanished. They invented up. They burned our house down. And then I think they tried to burn our house down, but they got the wrong one wrong and burnt our neighbor's house. And then my uncle owned Nigeria's first independent television station. And he was looking for someone to build bridges between them and the BBC. Right. And because my father had a degree from Nottingham University and had traveled across the world and was already invested in telecommunications, he was perfect for that job. So my father came to London and then the rest of the family came with him. Yeah. Um, like a few months later, myself, my three sisters and my mother. And that was the first time we tried to settle here in the UK. And we applied for um, an extension to my father's working visa and us as a spousal visa for my mother and the rest of the family. And then a couple of things happened, which is that... Um, our our application went missing in the post. Royal Mail right. lost our passports. All my father father's qualifications, everything just vanished. No longer existed. And um, we, we were trying to restart the case, but the Home Office wanted us to go back to Nigeria, but they burned our house down, so we couldn't. You know. Yeah. Um, and then our lawyers advised us to go to Dublin, and we moved there and settled there. And um, and they were going to carry on with our case because they knew the real the real reason why we, we had left Nigeria. We didn't tell the Home Office that we just because we came as workers. My father was very adamant. He didn't want to come to seek refugee stages. He wanted to come to work. Yeah. Typical Nigerian mentality. Yeah. So either way, yeah, yeah. The, the lawyers stopped no, coming. No matter which is the easier option or <laughs> yeah. easy to get through if you've lost all your paperwork and stuff exactly. like that. But no, here's yeah. who I am. Here's what yeah, I am. Here I am. Come to work. Um, but then our lawyers here in London stopped communicating with us in Dublin. Right. Just nothing. And because of that, we had to try, we had to apply to live in Dublin as refugees. And halfway through the application, my, my father began getting um, text messages and death threats from a group calling themselves Sinn Féin, telling us to get the hell out of Ireland. Wow. 
And initially, my father thought was like, okay, these are just text messages. Like, we've survived more in Nigeria. Just ignore yeah. this, carry on living. So we lasted a whole other year till we finished um, maybe just about the last few weeks after we finished our leaving certificate in Dublin was when the threats got more intense. And I began to text my father about um, describing the clothes we were wearing as kids, me and my sisters, oh, wow. threatening um, to beat us up and threatening to rape my sisters. Oh, and wow. that was the line there. My father was like, no. Yeah. So in 1999, um, no, 2001, for the third time, we left everything again. Our best friends, all our, all our possessions, really, and came back to London to try and figure out um, how to what had happened to our lawyers, why they stopped communicating with us and start, and start living again. And then we discovered the most ridiculous thing, right? Our lawyers had been raided and shot down by the home office for selling identities of the clients on to other people. Wow. So they were fundamentally, um, what's the word? Um, how can I put this? Disagreeable. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't helping immigrants at all. They were exploiting them for money, yeah. their status, the precarious position, everything. Um, so in 2005, we had to restart all over again our immigration um, case. Wow. And it was only in 2011 we got something called discretionary relief to remain, which we had to renew for three years at a cost of something like um, a grand each just to apply for the status to be renewed. And then that only got sorted um, last year when we got indefinite leave to remain. So now I can apply for British citizenship. But the first step is to, be, is to apply for naturalization and then a British passport. So it's taken, since 1996, we've been on this journey. So 20, yeah, 23 years. And it's still not quite over yet. That's absolutely mind-blowing. And, and it must have, again, taken so much resolve from from your family to to go from one threatening place, find another, yourself in another, another threatening one. place, find yourself repeatedly having to to fight, essentially, whether it be uh, against the threat of violence or against the threat of deportation or whatever else. That's, yeah. It's mad. Um, one of the things I've, I've spoken to a few, um, I mean, specifically friends from the African nations who've lived over here or who have, have, have grown up over here on the kind of su subject of identity. And it's talked about a lot in... Um, I had Alexis Koa on who wrote Amula's Starless Sky, which is an amazing book about individuals kind of fighting extremism in Africa and, mm. their, and their individual struggles and battles. And one of the things that I think can be really tough is depending on when you leave can be dependent on your perception of the good guys and the bad guys. I think mm. in Africa there's such a common thing of the good guys becoming the bad guys, the people who are, uh, are, are, are the revolutionaries then getting in power and becoming c corrupted. Boko Haram originally were meant to be the the people kind of thing and yeah. supposedly for the people and then became the uh, largely considered an, a negative force rather than yeah. a positive force. How is that for someone who left at the age of, of 12 or 13 and mm. under threat? And I'd imagine there would be areas that you see as your allies and then not. Do you know what I mean? If you, when you're distanced from that, how easy yeah. is it to, to keep, or is it easier in a way to keep an honest eye on, 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 on all the changes? I think it's easier because 
I've spent over half of my life now floating mm. amongst various communities, always looking sideways, tangentially at things, never head on, never from inside. I've always been outside looking in, yeah. which meant that I have a discerning eye and I think I can be more objective than most people. And I've always existed in the gray areas. I've always been between countries, always been between cultures, between even between art forms, between styles of poetry, between cliques in schools. I've always been in the gray areas. So I've never really, I, ne- I never released really things as black and white because I've never had the privilege to be able to see things black and white. Yeah. 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 That's, that's fascinating. And, and you talk about the kind of in-between the, the styles and it kind of brings me back to the, the spoken word scene at that time, kind of t- 10 years or so ago, because there were so many people who were venturing off in different directions, changing what they were doing. I still think that one of the most iconic nights that happened on that scene, there was about a hundred people in the room and we put on a Pip versus Pip and it was poem in between people versus mm. me, but I brought in Polar Bear and Kate Tempest on my team yeah. and it was presented as kind of a, yeah. a battle, but it was this wonderful Thing and just just looking there and seeing Musa excelling in journalism and, mm. and social commentary and Josh excelling in music and yeah. Kate excelling in in literature and theatre mm. and you excelling in literature and theatre, mm. it felt like a great scene to be part of because it didn't feel like here's what you're meant to do or here's what you should be aiming for. It's like no, aim for anything. It's yeah. I guess because. At that point, no, no one had particularly got huge success or commercial success. It just meant everything was on the table still. Everything yeah. was up for grabs. And Whereas like, if you were in an indie band, it's like, well, you've got to aim for the Coldplay thing. Yeah. You've got to aim for this or that. Whereas because there was no one to aim for, it's like, fucking take it all. Yeah, just make it up as yeah. you go along. Yeah. yeah. I, really, I really think so. And I really think, I really think that is the brilliance of poetry. Because all you're trying to do is explain the world as you see it to someone else. Yeah. Which is, which is another way of saying all you're trying to do is think clearly. And the more you do that, the more you can, you can divert to other art forms because you try to do the same thing. Yeah. This is the art form. This is how to create something within this art form. How can I think clearly to put myself in this art form? It's the same sort of nexus of thought, of generation, of, of yeah. And I think when we started out, there was that freedom to create, just to just to go invent your own, you know, um, and maybe that's why we're still in the game right now. Yeah, we're still yeah. doing the things because we're able to to firstly articulate ourselves to ourselves. Then it was a safe space where we could articulate ourselves to each other, and then we could branch out to do whatever the hell they wanted. Yeah, yeah. And at that point, no one was particularly ever gonna back you or invest in you yeah, or, yeah. or fund you. So it was like, we we'll just do it. Whereas now there will be a bit more of, well, I need to get this arts funding. I need to get this, yeah. I need to get this and that. And back then it was like, look, there's a room above a pub that I can put <laughs> yeah. on my thing in. So let's go and go yeah, and do it rather than try and have all these restrictions of what you need to do before that. Yeah. So correct me on your journey. if Because from my outside, from my hazy memory mm-hmm. and outside looking in, is that you kind of went from spoken word to kind of a one-man show. Mm-hmm. And that kind of started to get your name really about in the kind of theatre scene and things like that. And then it progressed to kind of full theatre productions, writing for others, writing for actors to perform your words. How was that 
journey to go from, because I said, it's, it's, you said that spoken word and poetry can be about just trying to speak clearly, mm-hmm. trying to understand yourself. At what point does the comfort come in to go, I, I can speak for other people. I can put my words in. I can, I can be so clear with my words that, that I can put them in someone else's mouth and feel comfortable and feel well, safe. I can trust someone else with it. I think to answer trust is still a big thing. Yeah. And you just have to let it go at some point and, yeah. tr- and, and trust the director and trust that everyone on board are collectively working to create something beautiful and true. Yeah. And it might not be, what you imagine, but it will be that in some shape or form. And theater is all about collaboration. Yeah. And it took me a while to get there, but the progression there felt very natural. And maybe that's why I didn't feel too difficult to get there, Yeah, which is I began writing long poems, which became one man shows where I performed those long poems. Then um, I began writing still a poem, maybe written in, in one voice, but two or three people performing it mm-hmm. so I could still control it somewhat. Yeah. And then writing plays where I was in a room talking to myself, essentially. Yeah. Um, maybe one was an older version of me talking to a younger version of me. Yeah. And there'd be underlying poetic structure or technique or, or just lyricism rippling through the conversation. Therefore, it still felt like a poem. It still felt like yeah. safe ground to the point where I'm doing crazy shit now where I take a, a poem and I deconstruct it into a short story and then add more lines into it. Yeah. So there's still, a, a, there's still poetry everywhere. Is maybe un- invisible to people who aren't aware aware of it. Yeah. But poets, when they read a text, they'll be like, "Oh, this is what anyone's fucking doing, man. It's the same yeah. shit from thirty years ago." You yeah. know. I mean, yeah. the whole you can judge a man by the company he keeps. I think we were lucky at that point because the stuff that you were doing there, also stuff that Polar Bear was doing, mm. S- Stephen, um, where he was doing these one man shows that were you'd almost forget that it's only a, a one man because mm. you'd be getting. S- such a full story. Yeah. And Chris Redmond, I remember at the time was doing some really cool stuff as well. And it was just a real cool, and Kate, obviously Kate Tempest, it was just a really cool variation of people. Again, just saying, don't be scared of theater. It's not closed off to us. It's not this, again, this white middle-class privilege. It's, Mm. it should be for everyone. And I think, Again, shouts out to venues like the Albany and um, and, and and the Battersea Arts Centre and things like that, who were open to to taking risks and pushing new new boundaries and new voices. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. so so how? Let's kind of get on to what we're we're here to to, uh, uh, to talk about. And I mean, you're doing the Barbershop Chronicles yeah. is, is on at the Roundhouse from yeah. July 18th onwards. Yeah. I got sent a press release for it and I thought, right, the first half of this conversation, we were both there. Mm-hmm. We've got this, I, you know, I, I thought that there's no avoiding that it's going to get at points, old mates catching up, can yeah. <laughs> And this part, I decided, right, I'm not going to read the press release. I'd rather you explain it to me. So yeah. the listener is in, so I'm in the same position as the listener. As listener so, yeah. so, so what is the Barbershop Chronicles and how did it come about and what inspired you to kind of create um... it? Wow. It's a big question, right? <laughs> well, yes, but it's also an old one. I've answered this for about two years running. Yeah. So each time I ask a question, I think, how can I answer this differently? <laughs> um, what is it about? 
is about African men talking in yeah. barbershop and, and saying bullshit and saying really, really crazy, sometimes politically alarming, sometimes socially alarming things, but completely living their truth. Yeah. They're just being themselves. Um, it's about a global network of barbers and clients who know each other, but don't know that they know each other. Right. It's set in six different barbershops, five of them on the African continent, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Uganda, Nigeria, and Ghana. And um, they're all watching the same football match. Um, it starts at 6 a.m. in the morning and ends around 8 a.m. at night. And we just follow them through the day, through the course of a day. One conversation starts in London, but it's only truly resolved by another conversation, which is related to it, but happens yeah. in South Africa, for instance. And we meet sort of like um, some guy who's talking about his cousin in Zimbabwe. Then we meet that cousin in the photo scene, and he and that cousin's client talks about a businessman he met in Nigeria. Then we meet that that client in like in London, and it's just yeah. like a transnational conversation about masculinity and about what it means to be alive in the 21st century. And most of the characters are, Af all the characters are of African descent. There's one Jamaican man in it in London. But a lot of the things that talk about um, cross-culture, they cross socioeconomic backgrounds, um, and they're just about life, really. And there's a lot of music in it, a lot of dance, a lot of movement, a lot of humor in it, a lot of absolute tragic, tragic stories. But it's very celebratory. Yeah. I think that's what the Barbershop Chronicles is. And I love it. how it started is because a girl I was dating way back, way back. Oh my God, you may have, you may know her. You may have met her. Her name is Crystal Lai. Yes, I've met yeah, her at some point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh my God. So when we were dating, <laughs> um, I, I love her. She's married now, but she was just such a good influence in my life. Um, yeah. um, anyway, she gave me this flyer, um, which was to teach barbers about counseling. And it was to teach barbers about how to notice mental health issues that might come up in conversation with their clients and how to also offer remedies right there in the shop. So two things struck me is that one, they're not saying this person is sick, um, tell them to go to the hospital. They are saying this person is sick, fix it as best as you can, and also do it right there in the barbershop, which meant that the barbershop was safe territory for yeah. them to talk about mental health. And in black communities, it's really stigmatized. It's really yeah. like you just don't talk about it, you know. And, and the thing is, I left Nigeria, like, you know, when I was 12. And because of how tight money was, I stopped going to barbershop because I couldn't afford haircuts. So I forgot what it felt like to be safe in an environment among us black men. Yeah. And because of, of being a workaholic... The only way I could legitimize myself hanging around in barbershops was if I could make something from my time there. Yeah. So I'd go in with my pen, listening with my dictaphone, listening <laughs> to recorded conversations, talking with the barbers, recording them, and you know, and slowly began to make this play in 2009. But then it took, in 2013, it was when I traveled to the continent for the research, then 2017 was when it came. So like, what, eight years from when I had the first idea to yeah. the play opening? Long, long time. And what a beautiful form of forced research right you're yeah. forcing yourself to in, embed yourself in a in a community i guess that you probably needed at yeah. that point you'd probably Definitely. missed from your life um to paraphrase a kind of internet meme 
a lot of the white Western world has grown up without barbershop culture and it shows. Um, and I, 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 think, I think it feels like it could be literally the solution to, to the mess that we're in because yeah. it's exactly as you said, it's a safe place. To, and, and I'm gutted I've never had it, but it's, mm. it's a safe place to ask potentially ignorant questions mm-hmm. and not feel under attack or under threat, to express particularly offensive views but not feel under attack feel it can be discussed i mean you'll be cut down by your boys potentially but but still not feel i can't say that because all of twitter is going to swarm on me and cancel me you know this whole cancel culture and stuff like that so it's a a fascinating one when i had killer mike on um he was speaking about how when he started to have success he was all about entrepreneurship entrepreneurship his point at the time and i've never heard it said like this is like you can be that typical rapper of being a baller and having all your money but you can still help your community you don't have to be i don't know common kind of in 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 the in in the community side of it or or most deaf or whomever else but you can make sure that the reason you're balling is also feeding your society so at that point killer mark was like all my merch is made locally you know, I'm, I'm, so everything I'm doing, I'm putting money into my site. And that's when he started. The first businesses he started outside of music was his chain of barbershops. Because yeah. he was like, they're a key part. My community needs them. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's, it's something where it can be entrepreneurship as well as, as looking out for your people. And that was a fascinating thing to hear and how they've spread. That even now, the simplicity of... And again, it can largely be men, but I guess there's 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 a, a similar effect by female hairdressers and salons. It's the fact of being around people and being in real close, intimate proximity mm. and talking to other men and yeah. talking about kind of being forced to talk yeah. because you're there and you can't just sit there in silence. It's weird. So it's that great thing of forcing men to talk to other men. and I even think it's deeper than that. Like when you're sat in the barbershop and you're wrapped in the barber's, you know, thing, the bib yeah, or whatever, yeah. it's almost like being a child again. Yeah. You can't move. All you can do is talk. Yeah. And there's a man who's leaning over you with a blade to your neck. Like you have to trust that dude, <laughs> like yeah. implicitly, you know. It's and it's intimacy there, Exactly. Right? Of course you're going to talk. Yeah. Man is literally inches away from your face sometimes, really looking, trying to beautify you. Yeah. And then you stand up, you're pruning yourself in the mirror. Like you go through shades of questioning subconsciously. Like, is it okay to be looking at my eyebrows here? Is it okay to like to want to look beautiful? Yeah. And that's the sole point. Look at my, you know. So, yeah, of course. And, it's- and, and to not overanalyze it as well. You're forced to look at yourself for maybe a longer amount of time than you would normally Otherwise, take. Yeah. You're you're staring yourself. You're literally staring yourself in the face. So yeah. it's a hell of a time and moment for reflection that you may not otherwise have. Mm. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. So so how important as a writer, as a man of words, how important was it to make sure you get the right stuff outside of the words get the right music get the right vibes in in in, in this show because again it is that there are also places that will generally have a radio on mm. there'll be or a tv on with some sports or something there's there's always that background noise to yeah. relax you into i guess it's that that thing of there's potentially 
five guys in a row mm-hmm. having really deep, intimate conversations yeah. inches from each other, but feeling that comfort to have that conversation yeah. and, and release. And I think the background sounds are a key part of that. So how was that in putting together? Oh, it was, it, was, it was so important. Making sure we chose music that had the right vibe um, was important. Um, and, and making sure it felt like a barbershop, that it felt culturally specific, but also open and inviting, which mm-hmm. is why at the start of the play, it's just the vibe. Like um, there's someone who controls the music, but they're DJing live at the start Brilliant. of the show. And it's open, so we pull people from the audience to sit in the barbershop, and we sort of mind giving them haircuts. We put the bib around their wow. neck, etc. And sometimes um, the barber, <laughs> the actors now, they play songs that they know, so they begin to do loose choreography to it. Yeah. So it just looks just looks really nice. It looks like a party on stage. Even before the show happens, people are nodding. People, yeah. are, I'll tell you, this this crazy thing happened where we have. Um, an old school generator, which has been like made made for theater, so it doesn't run on like fuel or whatever on yeah. petrol. But uh, we have a generator which is for the scene set in Nigeria, where because of electricity we have to have generators there. Yeah. But um, there was a girl who saw the play at the national um, last year, and um, she asked the actors if if she could plug her phone in the generator. So they kind of looked at her and said, "Yeah, okay." So she did. She just plugged the phone <laughs> and sat on and watched the play. And she was emotionally invested in the show. She yeah. felt like it was her space, like she was yeah. watching her older brother to the point where there was no fourth wall here. Yeah. I'm going to plug my generator because I can. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, and th- things like that never happened at the National Theatre before. No. And the actors do go to lengths to make the audience feel like this, 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 what we're showing you is a place for black masculinity, but it's a place for conversation and you're welcome to this conversation. Yeah. And we really cracked that in the start. So the audience feel like they can be vocal, almost like they would be in a poetry scene, Yeah, you know, where they could clap, they could jeer, all of those, like we, we make sure that that, that space is there for the audience to really come into the space with themselves, their spirits, the ghosts of your fathers and, you know, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I I love it because it's, it's, it is completely comparable because I think the poetry, a poetry gig and the theatre are both areas that can be intimidating to a lot of people mm. who haven't been before, can think, oh, I'm not someone, or particularly areas of, of, of society. Mm. Working class people don't necessarily know that art galleries are for them. The theatre yeah. is for them. Poetry gigs are for them. It's for everyone. So it sounds amazing that you've, created this show that is so welcoming i can imagine people coming nervously yeah. and then being relaxed b- before it even before kicks it off because they're like yeah. oh this is what theater is <laughs> yeah this is what i was scared of this yeah. is this is lovely so yeah. how is that to watch i mean you spoke of the building up and developing the trust to put your your stories or ideas in the hands of others how is it to watch when it's kind of also in the hands of the audience and you get yeah. to see it develop and become this amazing, beautiful, warm thing, kind of, I'd imagine, bigger than you could have imagined when yeah, you're writing yeah. it down, you know? Like, the first preview was terrifying because we didn't know anything. Yeah. We just knew we rehearsed it well enough. We knew that the play worked, but um, we weren't sure how the audience, if they'd meet us the rest of the journey. A play is only a play when it's put before an audience. Everything else Completely. is just... It's just rehearsal, really. It's yeah. just it's, you haven't finished the show yet. The audience completes that equation. Yeah. So we were nervous as hell, but after the first preview, 
the applause we got was astonishing. It was unanimous, standing ovation. The actors and myself and the director and the assistant director, we just looked at each other, lost, like deer in New Forest, like looking yeah. at the light, like, what the fuck was that? And then the next few shows was just understanding what we're feeling the play out. What more can we die in You know, and now it's just, it's just a pleasure to see people from across the country responding to it in their own ways wondering what makes it work specifically here. And the actors who we've cast the play so many times now, they find different things. They, some of them improvise lines like, oh my God, I should have written that down. And I write it in my notebook here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So each time it feels, it feels new. But the conversations remain timeless. They remain, yeah. they just cut across culture and, and, and socioeconomic background. And, and it's, just, it's just a joy each time. And to the point where sometimes I forget that I wrote it. The actors just own the character so Beautiful. much. It's so like them. It's just, you know, and the closing scene of the play, that was something I could not have seen. When I wrote it, the guy that I interviewed for that last scene is, Lucy, is a character called Ethan, and he's an actor. And he comes into the shop asking for a, barber, for a haircut. And his mother usually cuts in, but she has to work late, and he has an audition the following day, so he's nervous. And... um and um, he grew up in a single-parent household. His father was never there. And the guy we cast, just by, by the luck, was a guy who was of mixed-race heritage. He's half black and half white. And I didn't write that character to be any racial specific, specific yeah. anything like that. But the first time I saw him in it, I realized another layer to be of mixed-race heritage and to question your own blackness in a yeah. play about blackness. Yeah. And, oh, my God, it moved me till no end. I remember on the last night at the National Theatre seeing a young mixed-race guy watching that scene who was sitting opposite me. So I just saw his whole body change because the guy on the stage was speaking his truth and was speaking my truth in a way that I didn't see it. And because I left Nigeria when I was a kid and stopped going to barbershops and stopped having been in a, in a country full of other black people i had been questioning my own blackness and yeah. that was what i imbibed in that character but seeing someone who was also black and white live through my anguish oh my god it blew my mind yeah and and it is it's just the, the crazier thing is i also think of that character ethan as being the larger non-british public who see the play who are close to maybe African communities or have friends who are black or Asian or who are not white, who are the equestrian, who when they are in maybe potentially race, um, racial sensitive situations and are nervous about saying the wrong thing and therefore yeah. are quiet, not because they might say the wrong thing, but because they don't want to trample on any toes. Yeah, so they yeah. just kind of shut down or, or become a little bit more inhibited. And I think of Ethan as being that conduit of being within the community and out of it as well and yeah. questioning his agency within that. Yeah. So Ethan for me represents everyone who is non-white, sorry, non-black, but completely loves the characters and loves everything that they're going through and is wondering, yeah. can, I, can I be a part of this, this, this conversation here? Is, is it yeah. okay? Just eking and feeling it out. And, but that's something I could not have seen when I wrote the scene. So Ethan represents something like 70% of the world's hip-hop fans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. White kids who are like, ah, am I... Oh, I love uh, yeah. this. Is oh, this okay? Is this okay? Is it, <laughs> yes. it's, it's completely it, right? That's, that's what I had growing up, like yeah. just loving hip-hop. I mean, 
I'm a white kid in Essex. Am I allowed to Am love hip hop? Am I allowed to, yeah. to feel connection to this and, yeah. and, and related to it? Um, David Mamet is someone who I've been studying recently in, in a, a desire to improve myself as an actor. And he speaks a lot about how exactly as you said, a play only becomes a play when you're in front of those, in, in front of that crowd, mm. in front of that, that audience. How much kind of tweaking goes on as as the writer or creator after it's after it's started because you can do everything in rehearsals mm-hmm. and then when it's out there it's it's the, the same with spoken word i always found the words remain the same but the silences change completely yeah. the gaps change completely i'd learn that there's a gap that i didn't know was there because yeah. it needed to be there because the audience needed that moment to, to to let that settle yeah um how much do you have to kind of allow yourself to go in and tinker or allow or just sit back and go no let's just leave it no. as it is because it's been it's it's de- developed as well it started in smaller theater and then it's gone up and up to this yeah. to, to where it is today so it's been although it's starting at the, the roundhouse in july it's had a life and a journey to get there yeah i mean in america we were playing to three thousand seater venues wow it's huge massive and at the national it was 400 seaters yeah and we've played some places it was like 230 um at stanford university yeah. for instance so it's gone on a huge journey and um we don't tinker with the script too much anymore the actors have some fluidity some space to improvise sure. some things to clarify necessarily um there were some lines which we made more specific to an american audience for instance but generally from the very first preview, maybe that first week, we were tinkering with the play. But after that, it's sort of settled to what we have now. Um, and that's excluding the improvisation alliance, which allows some of the characters to Yeah. Do. Yeah. I, I love that. So is there is, is, is there is there an excitement each time you take it into a new venue? Because the venue and the type of audience d- d- does change things a lot. Yeah. I'd imagine an American audience, because of... Barbershop culture out there is far bigger than it is over here. So I'd imagine it's a huge difference, a huge, different kind of crowd. Again, the stereotype of Americans, but still a a different crowd there. How is it taking it from place to place and finding what works in that venue or or how it lives in that venue, what the play is in this new location? That has been such a learning curve, you know. That's a really, really great perception of you. Um, There are times where we take it, to places in America where there's a strong barbershop community, barbershop culture. Therefore, people come expecting to see their barbershops on stage, and they'd be like, yep, cool. Sometimes some audiences were displeased that we didn't have a scene set in America in the play because it's all on the African continent and the UK. So we had to sort of deal with those um, um, expectations somewhat. There were some times where the population would largely over 40, over 50 white upper middle class people who could afford the $100 tickets or whatever. And we had to mic the actors to make sure that the African accents were as clear as possible because sometimes they couldn't, you know, really listen to some of the nuances. And there were times where um, we were performing to um, a a student population and they just got everything. We didn't have to do anything. They were like, yeah, all good. So, Huge, huge, huge variation. And each time it was it was exciting just to see how to engage with this audience again through the same text. Yeah. What to pause, what to speed through, how to dial up this place here, etc. It's mad the difference in, as said, huge, the, yeah. the, 
the repetition of the same of the same text can be such a different yeah. thing. It's it's similar to the difference between r- written and spoken, spoken, you know, there's yeah. so much difference and so much variation to be mm. had there. And I think it's why a lot of the problems that we've got with social media or whatever is because we lose the nuance of, yeah. of, 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 or a lot of the nuances of language because it's just there plain in, bl- in, bl- in black and white yeah. with no further tone or, or distinction. So, yeah. yeah, it's a weird change. Well, I mean, we're kind of at the hour mark, okay. so I'll start to wrap things up. But before we do, I want to talk about your rap parties yeah. as well. Explain them, what oh, they are, how they... They're just fun, man. <laughs> just, Again, it um, sounds beautiful because you bring them into like the roundhouse and these kind of yeah. locations. So, yeah. um, it's very simple. I get ten poets to read a poem that engages with any aspect of hip-hop culture, anything, yeah. from just the hairstyles to, I don't know, sneakers to graffiti or whatever anything and then they choose two of their favorite hip-hop songs that are tangentially related to the poem they've read and then my dj plays those songs and we just do that for as many poets as we have on a bill yeah that's it so one poem two hip-hop songs and that, that's the that's the rap part it's painfully simple i love but it we can scale it up so we do events where he's in a bookshop and he's all seated down and the song tracks on like maybe I don't know six to seven minutes long between the poems or we can scale it up where it's a full on club night yeah. and the music breaks are longer and everyone is dancing and we have four stages that surround the audience so the audience keeps spinning around to see where the, where the poets are going to perform um, and then the largest one we did was at the British Library um, to about 800 to 900 people wow and um and yeah, it's just very, it's just fun. Is it, it's, is, is it fun to watch as the night goes on and people loosen up into it? Because yeah. again, I'd imagine at first they're here, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a reading or a performance. So it, it's weird. Like do, I, I love doing my club night because the difference between my club night to when I used to play live is they don't need to look at me. <laughs> they can look at each other and they can enjoy, they can look around the room. Whereas like when you're doing a gig, everyone is focused on that point. Whereas I'd imagine it takes a minute for people to go when there's not a poem being performed, you can just lose yourself in the room. It's music. You should be enjoying it. I do some things to try and communicate that as early as possible in the night. One is that when there's a stage, there's a pool of light, spotlight, I step up, and I explain the night, but I also, I also make sure that there's light on the audience. So it doesn't feel like there's a huge demarcation between the audience and the performer. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the performer wants to see the audience. They feel included in the conversation in the poem. And therefore, I always tell them when the songs are playing, you have eight minutes, you could get up, shake your ass, order a drink or come back. When the poets are on stage, is the only time where you're not allowed to speak. Yeah. Everything else is just loose. Yeah. And also do things where I walk around the audience and ask them... Um, to come up with your best four line raps and then give the microphone and perform it to the whole room. Amazing. You know, so I just try to make it as, as like, feel like a little bit, as like, as much like a house party as I can get away with feeling in like, yeah. the British library, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love it as a concept because it's bringing, it's easing entry in both directions. Mm. The rap kids who feel poetry is, exclusionary but then equally the poetry kids who feel rap, rap isn't something they can, yeah. can get into and that's that's as it's an overlooked one but it's as common it can be an intimidating and you can feel yeah. un, un, unqualified or, or or not allowed into that world and yeah again i kind of experienced it from being a rap fan and then 
feeling out of place a lot of the time at early spoken work gigs. It's why me, Polar Bear and Kate always were drawn together because we were the ones who felt like the poor white kids in yeah. amongst a lot of the more particularly when they were doing them at RADA and stuff like that, you feel as if you're like, am I going to get kicked out in a minute? Is someone <laughs> going to check my ID and go, can yeah, you move yeah. on? Yeah. But again, it's going the other way as well. Rap sh- should be for everyone. It sh- you mm-hmm. shouldn't have to have grown up on that block to get that song. Get you that should song, be able to find yeah. that relation and find that You're that absolutely intimacy. right. And we, we, we make sure of that in how we program um, the rap parties or we even get some people who are strictly page poets yeah. like one of the best rap parties we did was the miseducation of Lauren Hill rap party where we commissioned poems for each song it was amazing oh, oh my wow. god it was so much fun yeah. but someone on the bill was um, Emily Berry who runs who's the editor for Poetry Review which is one of the most respected and oldest prestigious poetry magazines um, in the country but and she wasn't even necessarily a fan of hip hop but she loved Lauren Hill I was like just write a poem about the song you love and it was just beautiful. So we tried to make sure that the poets in the deal are eclectic, that they come yeah. from various... Because that's a key as, as well. I mean, we touched upon the, 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 the overlooking of variations of cultures in the African nations or, or in Asia. But similarly in poetry, page poetry and spoken word for a long time have been very, very different, different worlds. Yeah. And again, going either way in them has not been easy or at times has not been welcomed. Mm. Um, I think we still see it now with... People like Holly and McNish mm-hmm. and Kate Tempest have both at points had their had their written work attacked yeah. um, by those who are tr- tr- traditional from the the page poetry world, and it's a tough one because I think in general there's valid discussions to be had. I think spoken word is very different from page poetry, mm-hmm. and that's a beautiful thing. The differences should be celebrated, but it's when these things are written as attacks and making it exclusionary and locking you out of of the different areas the way i've always viewed it is it is to the poets this question to figure out who that poet's audience is and how to create work that best represents that audience or that poet's background yeah which is to say the different types of uses of language and different types of appreciating those who respect that language and creating work that they can align themselves with yeah right and and that's it, uh, and and that's how huge the scale of poetry is. We have people like I remember when people like you know and William Carlos Williams was was starting out, and he's an imagist poet, which means that he just writes imagery. Literally, the cup is on the table, the shadow slanting left, bang, take it. If you don't like it, fuck you. That's my poem. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. And people hated that when he was writing poems like that, yeah. and everything from. If you compare that to the work that. Kate or Holly are doing, they're, they're miles more technical or whatever. Yeah. But if you compare what they're doing to people like, I don't know, Byron or Shakespeare, yeah. who are all iambi pentameter and everything. The you structures, know, all sorts all of stuff. different. Yeah. But which is to say one is invalid from the other. It's just who likes that poem and will come to those poems because they get what they get from it. Yeah. And it has yeah. to be that democratic because if it becomes more prescribed, then it becomes politics. And if it becomes politics, it's not poetry. And yeah. poetry is bullshit. Yeah, completely. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. It, it, it gave me an instant f- flashback then, and I've realised that you gave me a bit of advice or said s- something in a conversation that we were having at least 10 or 11 years ago mm. that has stuck with me ever since. And again, there was always a discomfort, again, coming from rap and coming from a working-class white Essex. I never felt that comfortable with the idea of being a poet or poetry as a term. Mm. And I remember years ago, are, are you articulating it by saying 
it's not my place to call myself a poet. Mm. It's someone if someone else decides I am a poet, then that's then that's a great thing. Mm. And again, that that view has changed and warped over the years and yeah. varied. But I always remember that as a as as a really comforting thing of going right. I don't have to feel because again, I think for me at that point, if I was in the sound, I'm a poet. It's yeah. like, like, are they going to find out I'm not? Like, <laughs> yeah. like, are they going to learn that I'm not? Yeah. Whereas taking that stance of, if you feel I'm a poet, then that's cool. I'm just yeah. here telling stories and doing my thing. If you mm. feel it's poetry, that's a beautiful thing. So, again, I love those kind of redefinitions or, or ways to approach, you know, a feeling of inadequacy or feelings of, of exclusion. The, the even crazier thing is how ridiculous a thing poetry is. Yeah. And I'm speaking specifically about how pathetic words are as tools to communicate. Because we've talked about how much tone can affect the meaning of yeah. a word, right? Um, the meaning of words are not watertight. They change things and we invent new words. Brutalicious is a thing. Shit means so many things depending <laughs> on how you say it. You know, yeah. Words do not hold their meaning. And a poem... Is, is a series of words which attempt to be definite and precise and to hold their meaning intact. But that's going to change from generation to generation. Yeah. Someone said to each language, to each generation comes a new language, comes a new age, and that's completely true. A poem you read 30 years ago might not mean the same thing tomorrow because yeah. the word in it might shift. And therefore, trying to write a poem and hoping that it captures who you are and hoping it is some sort of marker is pointless. And then if you consider that um, poems only exist so far as the human consciousness exists to hold what a poem is supposed to is one thing, and how people from other language might not read the same poem in the same way, therefore it means nothing to them as another, then once the last human being dies, poems stop. They just vanish. And then if you consider how infinitely small human existence has been on the planet against things like metal or, yeah, or, or yeah. just the span of time, yeah. it's, it's literally pointless that we're fighting over something that by nature has to be finger-like. It has to be nuanced. It has to be limber and live. And we, we're trying to pin this shit down. We're almost by definition is unpinnable and it has to be to mean anything. Yeah. We, we just create, oh my God, human beings are fucking animals. Why, like, <laughs> why we do, oh, it rouses me up, man. It I should just agree more. It should just be what it is and you come to it or you don't and that's cool. Yeah, exactly. That comfort in the insignificance, if, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. In, on the fact that all of this is insignificant. It's, it's, it's yeah. got its own significance in its, in its, in, its in, in, its in what it is, but still the comfort in the fact it is all, it is all nonsense. It is all we humans are just this. We've built this god complex, yeah. But we're just another little thing, a little blot in time. We're all, we're all the lead in our own film, but no one's watching. No the one's films. watching. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's exactly how it is. It's, it's exactly, kind of it's, yeah. you're really excited about being the lead, but no one's watching, so it doesn't matter. It's yeah. lovely. You go and do that the best you can, but. No one's watching, so yeah. relax a bit. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end things. <laughs> yeah, um, a, a what's ahead? Is there anything else ahead that you want to mention or talk um, about that's that's on its way? Yeah, I have another play coming up in in at the National Theatre at the end of the year called Three Sisters. Yep. Um, and I have a book that just It's a new out. version of, Ch of, Chekhov's, of Chekhov's, yeah. 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 Which is really exciting. I'm terrified, but I'm really enjoying the process. And then... Um, 
Um, I have a new book just came out about six weeks ago called The Half God of Rainfall. Please buy a copy, book sales, um, or whatever they are. The book market is crazy, and yeah. I'm really proud of it. It mixes Greek mythology with Yoruba, West African mythology, and it's also about basketball, and it tells the story of this kid who's half the son of Zeus, half Nigerian mortal, and the powers don't work out quite as well. It's okay. funny. It's ridiculous. Golden age of basketball. Yeah. Um, you know, all all the players are there from from Jordan to like um, Hakim Olajuwon, the yeah. all-play peasant, you know. And Love it's it. it's about female solidarity and rage and vengeance. But it's it's an epic, epic contemporary. It sounds amazing. What's it called again? The Half God of Rainfall. The Half God of Rainfall. If when this comes out, I've forgotten. And in the intro and outro, I'm saying, oh, Go to my merch store and buy stuff or go on Patreon. Ignore all of that and buy that instead. For this episode, ignore my plugs and go for that one instead. Spend your money there instead of on mine. And where can people keep up to date with everything you're – all of the things that you're doing? Um, I'm across all social media, though I try to spend less time on it. On Twitter, it's just Inua Elams, I-N-U-A-E-L-L-A-M-S. Same thing on Instagram and my website is InuaElams.com. Spelling it is key there, I've realised, because – at one point on a on a podcast ages ago, I spoke a load about Musa, yeah. whose name is Musa Okwonga, and I had four different people saying, I've been Googling Moose Rockwonga. <laughs> was what they thought I was saying. So M-O-O-S-E, yeah, Rockwonga. Rock it's yeah. Moose, M-U-S-A-O-K-W-O-N-G-A. But they'd all heard it because I said Moose Rock. It was me and Polar Bear talking, I think, because we're so casual about it. It's Moose Rockwonga, blah, blah, blah. They'd heard that as Moose Rockwonga. So it's always good to clarify these things. Well, thank you very much for your time, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've said before that, I mean, it's exciting. I love it when I get hit up by PR teams or people Mm. to talk to someone who I know because it means that I'm killing it and they're killing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone else is being a middleman again. Oh, that'd be great there. It's like, I know that guy. So it's yeah. it's exciting to have that coming. And equally, when I sat down with Polar Bear and all these other people, I think the thing that means the most to me about this podcast is I get to have conversations with people that I know that I would would never have. Mm. Do you know what I mean? We would never, we potentially would never have got into your childhood, all these different things. Because when you meet, you catch up on the last month or two. Yeah. Say, so how's, how's things going? How's this? How's yeah. that? You don't go, so how was integrating into Ireland? And yeah, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. You don't casually have that conversation. And see, so, yeah, I'm glad we got to do this and it's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was a great one. Um, yeah, I really l- love ch- chatting to Inua. It's always a beautiful thing when I get hit up. I think I mentioned it in the podcast. It's hard to remember because we recorded it a month or two ago and it's quite a long one. But it's always nice when I get hit up by PR people and they're hitting me up about people who are my mates. Because I, I, I love that. The first time I really remember it happening and feeling proud was, was with Polar Bear, who, who's been on the podcast. But it's a beautiful thing because it means that your mates are killing it and they're, they're at a level where they've got PR people pushing their shit. And it means that, you know, in, in, in all honesty, it's nice to know or feel that I'm killing it, that 
that I'm being hit up by PR people. So it's a lovely kind of, particularly with mates who you've done gigs in front of two or three people like 10 years ago. It's beautiful to 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 see these real people succeed and know how hard that they've worked. So yeah, I love doing that. Um, a big love for all the love for the last couple of weeks, the Charlie Brooker episode and the... Um, and the Danny Boyle episode have obviously been going off. Um, I wanted to kind of mention a few from the year because someone mentioned that we've had a few um, on press junkets. And the last two in a row, the Charlie Brooker and Danny Boyle were on press junkets. Um, the one before that, um, Jed Mercurio wasn't. And Inua wasn't here. You don't really get junkets as such for a lot of more bespoke theatre stuff. But um, a few I wanted to highlight that... Um, if you didn't catch them, are really good. As I mentioned, the Tim Clare, the Mark Grist and Ross Sutherland ones are great, and PC Leon McLeod. But the Johan Harry episode, the Fatboy Slim episode, Norman Cook is is a cracker. The, the Ron Perlman one and J- Jade Adams were two of my favourites. Uh, Zoe Ashton and Nish Kumar um, and Joe Hartley. Uh, Mark Miller, Jamie East and the Emmy Awareness special with Jason Reed were all ones that, if you missed them, they're worth going back and, and giving a look. I mean, obviously, there's some huge names in there, but there's some that might get overlooked, um, and they're really worth a look. Also, on the kind of PR junket front, if you didn't catch the, the Mary J. Blige one, give that a listen. It's w- w- one of my favourites I've ever done, and it's weird because I, I know it's kind of indulgent in a way that it's one of my favourites because the first 20 minutes to half hour is as typical PR junket as I've ever had on the podcast, if you know what I mean. In general, I do these junkets and they're like the Eddie Izzard one, for example, where it doesn't feel like a press junket at all. And Charlie Brooker as well. But this one, the first 20 minutes, it feels so press junket and it was really hard to get through the wall because Mary was jet lagged and doing a lot of press. But then when we do get through the wall, it just feels all the more rewarding, if you know what I mean. It really... It's one that I'm really proud of because we had that kind of, yeah, that connection. It's it's when we got onto rap, to be completely honest. Um, I always try, as early as possible, I try and get, and this is going to, I mean, I talk about this in an up, upcoming episode with uh, Carrie Ann Lloyd, but reasonably early, I try and get a story of my own in there, which sounds egotistical, but it's not. It's to try and because I, I I try and make these conversations rather than interviews. So I'll try and get a story on my own in if I can find one that will kind of allow the guest, like if it's someone I don't know. I mean, allow that kind of c- connection or that crossed experience to try and turn it from here's my interview questions into let's have a discussion and a conversation. And with Mary. It took 20 minutes, half an hour, but then it finally clicked and we got on hip hop and kind of, yeah, it got there. It's, it, that whole thing started on the Eddie Izzard one. I fluked, he brought up a topic and by chance I'd had a journalist who was an expert on the on the topic. He brought it up quite early on and it meant that I could then add some, you know, researched intellectual knowledge re- referencing this journalist and it got his respect and it meant he opened up and a lot of people around that time who were organizing the press junk it felt that was 
the one interview he did that wasn't your typical kind of going over the same um, stories and, and anecdotes, which is part of Press Junkets. But yeah, anyway, I can't remember how I got to this. But one thing I wanted to talk about this week, because I'd already recorded the intro for last week's before I watched it, but Stormzy at Glastonbury, mate. If you didn't watch it and it's on iPlayer still, go and watch, because I feel that's as good a headline set as I've ever seen. Possibly the best headline set I've ever seen. And you know what? I'm no Stormzy expert. I'm a fan. I've played a lot of his songs in clubs, but I've not. I've bought his albums, but it's at a period where I'm not listening to tons of music. So I've listened and enjoyed, but but not exactly rinsed it. And even not that knowledgeable of his stuff. Like I didn't know which ones were new songs, which ones were old songs, which ones I knew the hits. But yeah, just as a performance, I thought it was it was historic. Obviously, he's the first black British solo artist to headline. Um, not the first bl- bl- black artist, because Sk- t- Skunk and Nancy headlined um, at one point. But yeah, he's the first black black British solo artist um, to headline Glastonbury. And just the, the, the show he put on, the amount of effort. One of my previous favourite headliners that I've watched was Bruce Springsteen. And Bruce Springsteen is one of my favourite um, artists ever. But even with Bruce, it was you know, had a good set, but it was just a band and a singer doing amazing songs and performing amazingly. Whereas Stormzy put on a full production and a full show and it was an experience. Um, It brought all the great things that the huge pop acts have brought in recent years. These, your Beyonce's, your Lady Gaga's and all these who, if you're into their music or not, they put on these amazing shows with costume changes, with dancers and and theatrics but then he took the best bits from those kind of performances but it was grounded in in south london which is as many of you know my my heritage and it just yeah it was so exciting and yeah it was bloody cool to see so yeah i wanted to have a quick ramble about that and and shout out stormzy also i should mention as i i tend to I'm back at the book club on uh, when the 27th, I think, July 27th. Uh, we're back at the book club again. Uh, we've got Russell from Block Party as our guest DJ. There'll be myself, Stu, Chris, DJ Distraction, Discotech Credits, just, yeah, Carol, DJ Whiffwick. Yeah, it's going to be great. Come down. It's free before nine. It's a five or after nine, and then the price climbs at certain points in the evening. But um, yeah, come party. I'll be there from, I normally get there at like seven to set everything up and make sure we're good to go. But always happy, particularly earlier in the night, to hang out. In fact, this is my birthday one. Um, it's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's within seven days of my birthday. So um, come down and celebrate with me. I'll be drinking and dancing. I'll be happy to chat with you, have photos, sign stuff if you want to bring anything to be signed. Always down for all of that. All of that, though, is always earlier, is always easier earlier in the night because if it's a good one, which they've all been, we've done this for almost 10 years now and they've we've got them all to s- s- sold out. A few have taken a bit longer than others. Our last event, we were up against numerous festivals and 
crazy strikes and all sorts of stuff. But um, so it was a slow start, but we got to a sellout in the end. But um, yeah, obviously the later it gets, the busier it gets, the the louder it gets, the sweatier it gets, the harder it gets to to hang out and chat. But yeah, come down to that. We're at the book club. We are lizards. Come get involved. Um, I think that's everything. Um, I'm a, a, a lot of you know I always release something on my birthday, August 3rd. And this year I've got a little plan. It's not a new release as such, but it's uh, I think it's an exciting one. And I think it's going to be one that you're going to want to keep your eyes on the socials to swoop upon as quickly as possible. Because, um, yeah, I think a few of you are going to miss out. But um, there's going to be some stuff. So yeah, that is all good. Anything else I need to, t- 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 to tell you about? Pod Bible Magazine. Pod Bible Magazine is your guide to podcasts. It's set up and put together by myself, Stuart Whiffin and Adam Richardson. Um, and you can go to podbiblemag.com to read it for free, or you can get physical copies in London, Brighton and Margate, um, or from the website. All you have to do is pay for the postage there. And yeah check that out it's your free guide to podcasts it's got recommendations interviews with people like adam buxton um richard herrin edith bowman um loads of good people brett goldstein all the people um and also a shout out to the new member of the distraction pieces network matt richards who's taken over the hosting duties on tuesday night jaw Excited to have Matt in there. Um, yeah, he's already smashing it. I've listened to two episodes he's been at the helm of, um, and they've been great. So, yeah, can't wait for all that's ahead. I'm going to get Matt on Distraction Pieces to have a chat about all things gaming and wrestling. Um, it's going to be cracking. All right, I'll leave it there. That's enough rambling, as this was already a long episode. But I'll put all the rambling at the end. L- let me know your thoughts on this. If you like the rambling at the end rather than at the beginning, yeah. I'll try. I'm thinking this might be the way to go, but um, yeah, we we shall see. All right, see you all next week. Who's my guest next week? Let me have a little look. I think it's Connie Huck, and it's a fantastic episode. Um, me and Connie arranged to um, <coughs> to meet up because we were convinced that we can both um, s- sit down and, s- and solve all the world's problems, and um, I think we did. Spoiler alert. Um, yeah. Next week is Connie Huck, so tune in for that. It's going to be great. There is a brief guest appearance from Charlie Brooker again. So Charlie being the first guest to be on twice in a year. Um, But yeah, that is next week. And loads of good ones to come. Head over to patreon.com slash scroobiuspip for uh, previews and hints and tips on who uh, I've been recording with. Next week I'm recording two episodes. The week after I'm recording one so there's a load of previews over there where I'll let you know who uh, who's my guest. Anyway, this has been the Distraction Pieces podcast. Um, my guest has been in you at Ellum's. Go and see the Barbershop Chronicles at the Roundhouse in August and then around the rest of the country in the autumn. But until next week, ta-ta.